sermon tonight is very briefly convictions and distractions. Good convictions we are to hold to and to harbor as believers and bad distractions to avoid. So first, good convictions. And we see this beginning in verse eight when Paul announces the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul mentions a saying, and maybe cliche, but we're familiar with these kinds of pithy statements even today. You might hear all the time, practice makes perfect, or what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Midlife is the best life. I made that last one up so I feel better about my age. But that's besides the point. Uh, These catchy sayings have been memorialized because they generally hold true. There's wisdom in them. And yet not always. Because we know no matter how much you practice, hate to break it to you, but you might not make it into the MBA. Some people never overcome the severe trauma they experience. The saying in this verse, though, is not like the rest we encounter. Paul says the saying is trustworthy. Literally, faithful is the word. So where other statements might have a kernel of truth, the saying Paul talks about is trustworthy. It is faithful according to God. You can bank and build your life on it, which then makes it paramount for us to figure out what the apostle is referring to. And this is where context comes into play, because context helps us. If we back up, Paul has just planted us on the gospel. In verses 3 to 7, Paul discloses the elements that make up the foundation of our faith. He first confronts us with our sin before highlighting our Savior, showcasing us the riches of our salvation, and how we are not in this alone, but we are being sanctified by the Spirit. And these pieces of the puzzle, these parts are indispensable to Christianity. These are fundamentals of the faith, if you will, that have now been synthesized into a popular, succinct saying that is supposed to be repeated among believers. That's why it's a saying. It's rehearsed and then passed down through the generations, which implies whether you're a new believer or you have been walking with God for decades You and I, listen, we do not graduate from the gospel. No, the gospel is home base for us. It is the heartbeat of Christianity because it cuts to our hearts and reveals our dire need, our greatest hope, our deepest conviction. And this is something Paul commissions Titus to insist on. This is something we are to insist on as believers. You know, other things in life we're more nonchalant about. I mean, for the most part, Christians of all people should be the most chill. We believe in a God who is sovereign, in control of everything, so we should freak out the least when things don't go according to our plans. We aren't to obsess with money and worldly comforts because we know, we know from the word, there's more to life than being rich. We have to be humble, willing to serve because we get it. We understand how much we've been served by Jesus Christ. So as Christians, empowered by the gospel, we ought not to sweat the small stuff. We can defer to other people's preferences. 
But there are a few occasions when we stand our ground, when we stick to our convictions. We insist then on divine essentials, the gospel truths that are non-negotiable because this is everything. And this changes everything, including our ambition, our aim in life, as Paul continues, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now, if you've been with us, this is nothing new per se. This is nothing new per se and novel in uh, our orthodox beliefs. Paul is once again reinforcing that connection between our faith and our works. Belief to behavior, from sound doctrine to godly living, as is the reoccurring theme in the book of Titus. Those who believe in God will naturally demonstrate it in good works. And the order is important. It is one direction. Good works are not done to earn God's approval. Good works are not done in order to receive grace. Good works are the expression of grace received. And listen, if this is hard for you, if it is difficult to break out of a works-based righteousness or system, take heart. Paul knows this. He wouldn't exhort us and teach us to be careful and devoted if it came easy and without effort. We need encouragement. We need to be taught. We need to be reminded that our works are not ultimate. And yet, at the same time, Paul insists they are necessary. So to that end, the apostle charges us to be vigilant, to be on guard, because there are many things vying for our attention our devotion, especially in this stage of life, Praxis. You know, we can be devoted to our significant others or the pursuit of dating and marriage. We can be devoted to our careers, trying to establish ourselves in the workplace, setting ourselves up for success. We can be devoted to our interests, spending all of our disposable income on a newly discovered hobby or using up all of our free time to binge the latest TV series. And these things may not be inherently bad, but are we just as committed, as razor-focused in doing good works? Praxis, are you as thoughtful? Are you that intentional in how you will bless others, serve the church, the people here in practice, to evangelize the lost? I mean, could you do something as simple as texting someone to let them know that you're praying for them? sharing a verse to encourage them through a hardship? Could you invite a newcomer to lunch to foster friendship, fellowship? Big or small, there's good work to be done. And all that is required, Paul says, is the conviction to do so, to follow through and execute. Now, where the apostle commends specific convictions in verse eight, he cautions against certain distractions, bad distractions, beginning in verse nine. He continues to show in contrast, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, what's the nuance of these terrible four? Well, let's briefly examine. Now, in life and ministry, we know that controversies are inevitable. But Paul is very precise. He charges us to avoid foolish controversies. You see, there are disagreements that can't be avoided, but there are those that can. 
So yes, conflicts are bound to happen. But we need to distinguish between, say, a genuine curiosity, a genuine question, and one disguised to provoke or waste our time. Now what follows helps us discern. Genealogies is next on the list. And genealogies might take us by surprise. But you see, you have to understand, back then, much of your social status came from your ancestral line. So for example, I am of noble birth because my ancestor, Lun Tsai, is credited for inventing paper. So you're welcome for all the handouts that you are writing on. But it was common in Paul's time for people to brag about their pedigree. You think about this, especially for the Jews, their religion was based off of being able to trace their origins back to Abraham, being linked with the great prophet Moses or King David himself. Now today, while we may not be boasting about who's in our family tree, I think we can be guilty of a similar concept, that we put too much stock, say, in what our parents value. Or we're ashamed of our upbringing, where we're from. Maybe this plays out in how we interact with others, our biases, our insecurities, who we associate with. We have given too much weight to our past when God calls us to be faithful in the present. Next up, dissensions. We'll address this more in the next verse, but it's pretty self-explanatory. The emphasis here, the nuance, is on the outcome of such fighting. Disputes that eventually drive a wedge between people. We are to remove ourselves from situations where friction will result in fraction. Lastly, we have quarrels about the law. Now, this is probably more up our alley. You just have to think of the Pharisees, how they were infamous, notorious for missing the forest for the trees. Look, arguing over the finer points of theology, it doesn't excuse us from watching our temper or treating someone we disagree with harshly, unkindly. Sin is always out of bounds in Christian conversations and even in doctrinal debates. Now, I know that was fast, but Paul's assessment of all these preoccupations, he calls them unprofitable and worthless. The result is the exact opposite of verse 8. Did you catch that? Where it is excellent and profitable to pursue good works. It is worthless and unprofitable to entertain these activities. They are distractions. And yet, I find that convicting because how often do we flip verse 8 and 9? Sure, we might not come out and say it, but by the way we live, by how we use our time, that's how we would rewrite these verses. We get sidetracked and squabble about trivial, temporal matters, all the while squandering opportunities to do lasting good, good work. Wisdom, like this passage, allows us to discern the best usage of our time, how to handle difficult situations, like what you do when you encounter a distraction, a fool like the one Paul presents in verse 10. It says, as for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. So a person who stirs up division, that's curious. Now, aside from that, what is the most scandalous sin you can imagine 
to occur in the church? Is it discovering that leaders in the church are embezzling money? These are hypothetical. Hopefully you know that. Is it someone getting caught in adultery? Abuse behind closed doors. Now these are all wicked, but Paul in our verse keys in on something much more subtle, but just as destructive. A person who stirs up division. Think of how diametrically opposed this is to Jesus' own mission and ministry on earth. You recall in his high priestly prayer, Jesus petitions in John 17, and he says to God, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is significant. You see, when brothers and sisters are united in Christ by the gospel, it validates the power of the gospel, that sinners can be reconciled to God because they are reconciled and in relationship with one another. Divisive people, though, they destroy the credibility of the gospel. After all, this is what the world often holds against the church. Is there much more damage done than a divided congregation? What church split isn't ugly? Now, please don't misunderstand me. You can disagree with one another, but you do so charitably. But listen, it is impossible to be divisive in a God-honoring way. There's a big difference between winning and being winsome. One is selfish, the other selfless. One is about conquering an opponent. The other sees a person as on the same side, representing the same team. The church is to be united in Christ and the dissenter, the divisive person, is a distraction from God and his holy purposes. And Paul informs us what to do. He says, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. Why? Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now, you might have read this. You might have even discussed this. And it seems a bit cruel. Sounds very harsh. But it is a loving thing. Because knowing that you're self-condemned is better than being self-deceived. One of my good friends grew up in the church and he went through the motions of attending youth group, reading his Bible. But at school, he lived a completely different life, living just like the unbelievers around him. He thought nothing of it, really, until one of his friends called him out on it. His friend simply directed him to the passage where Jesus teaches from the good tree should bear good fruit, whereas the bad tree bears bad fruit. And he just told him, hey, I'm not really sure you're a Christian by the way you live your life, you should think about that. And that was it. And my friend was stunned. He was mad, mainly because he received this message in a text, so don't do that. <laughs> but still, he was what the, call, what the kids call these days, shook. Because while he was angry, upset that someone would have the audacity to confront him, he was also bothered. He couldn't shake the thought that perhaps, perhaps his friend was right. 
You see, the gospel frees us to be brutally honest with ourselves and with others. That whether we're self-deceived or divisive, we all need to know how deep the darkness goes. That we're warped and sinful apart from Christ because no one comes to Jesus without humbly acknowledging they need saving. No one comes to Christ without recognizing that they are condemned. But when made painfully aware, when desperate for a savior, then you are convinced, then you are convicted by the gospel. Then the saying is found to be trustworthy. And Paul has another saying that you might be familiar with in the other pastoral epistle in 1 Timothy. And I'll close with this. 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 17 says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Let us flee from any bad distractions because this is our good conviction. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this short time in your word. And we pray that it would foster within us a greater passion and desire to pursue you, to be committed to the things that you are after, to not only believe in you, but to allow our belief to shape our behavior and therefore to redeem the time and do good works that are excellent and profitable for others and for our own soul. We pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment to pierce through all the things that are vying for our attention, that we may remain on course devoted to you. May we examine our lives soberly that we might remove what hinders us from running the race faithfully. And we pray for your help in this. We pray for other brothers and sisters who will give us insight, who will speak gently and correct us and point us to you. May that happen in small groups as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name.